Good travelers know it's people that carbonate your travels. But get too friendly too quickly with the wrong crowd, and your trip could end abruptly. Or you'll come back with a great story. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. For the past 10 years, Rolf Potts has been writing and blogging about his travel adventures and misadventures all around the world. He's compiled some of his most memorable stories about the people he's encountered in his travels in his latest book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There. We'll check in with Rolf today to hear what kinds of holes he's been punching into the world of conventional travel writing. Sort of a madcap adventure that turns philosophical in the middle of the story as I try to figure out why I'm doing this and why travelers in general seek to get away from other travelers. Later in the hour, we'll also open the phones for your budget travel tips and focus on ways to enjoy the local cuisine without going broke. We're finding ways to make your travels both an adventure and tasty in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. How do you find adventure when it seems that everything's long been discovered? Rolf Potts has a knack for meeting people and becoming part of the places he visits all around the world. For the past decade, he's been sharing his adventures through his blog at rolfpotts.com. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Rolf tells us about experiences that led to his latest book, a collection of travel tales called Marco Polo Didn't Go There. Rolf has gotten himself into and out of a few misadventures, and he's got an interesting perspective on what's different about the Internet generation of travelers and travel writers. Rolf, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. Your book is a collection of 20 stories. You're called the Jack Kerouac of the Internet Age. Uh, what's the big deal with the Internet Age? I mean, we know all about Jack Kerouac and, and, and hitting the road. How does the Internet change that magic of travel? Well, I think it's, it's done a couple of things. First off, I didn't call myself the Jack Kerouac of the Internet Age, but uh, Some, I, I like to be the Rolf Potts of the Internet yeah. Age. <laughs> um, USA Today wrote that many years ago. But, okay. um I think the internet makes travel easier at a certain level, and then it also makes it harder. It makes it, it, makes it a little bit easier to get out of the home, to, um, to make all of your plans in advance. But at the same time, the internet and, and technology in general have a, a way of threatening to cut you off from the actual experience of travel. I mean, when you're in the Sistine Chapel and your cell phone goes off, or when you're in the Himalayas and you're checking your email twice a day, then you're less where you are when you travel. And part of the charm of travel is being away from home and doing things spontaneously and not being connected back to home. Boy, isn't that the truth? I remember in the early days of travel, it was uh, the big challenge was how can loved ones even know where their loved ones are? And now you can be on the road and other people won't even know you're away from the office. Yeah, you really can. I, you know, I've been a full-time travel writer for 10 years now, and I'm even coming to the point where I'm thinking, gee, you know, 10 years ago, it was so much more engaged, you know. Yeah. Um, there wasn't the threat of having a, a cell phone call come in when you're having a beautiful travel experience. And Internet was so slow and so expensive 10 years ago that it was less of a distraction. But uh, these days, the very things that make us more connected and give us more information about the world also threaten to cut us off from the world. And as we travel, sometimes with our affluence and our carefulness and our risk-averseness, we shelter ourselves from the actual pithy excitement of the travel adventure. I know that for a lot of us, Sometimes the mishaps are what gives us the real uh, adventures to write about. You were actually drugged and robbed in Istanbul? That's correct. Yeah, that's one of many uh, mishaps that populate the stories in, in this book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There. And in fact, often the most memorable stories are the ones where what you expected to happen didn't happen. And uh, I think anyone who reads my new book will see that there's a lot of uh, unexpected, accidental, and sometimes serendipitous things happening. Now, do those in retrospect become blessings, even though you were drugged and robbed, or was that still a catastrophe for you? Well, it was. Uh, of course, it was a catastrophe in real life. I guess it was a blessing in that nothing worse happened than me being drugged and robbed. Um, but I think sometimes these negative experiences make interesting stories, and they're also a little bit therapeutic as a writer. It was actually fun to write that story because I wrote it in the manner of a whodunit, whereas hmm. in the first paragraph of the story, I say, look, I got drugged and robbed, and then I take the reader back to the very early minutes of that day, and I meet the shady characters, and the reader is left to guess, who is it who's going to rob me? Um, and it was fun. I wrote that for an online magazine for Salon many years ago, and I got three or four emails of people who wrote and said, wow, you're really stupid. We could tell you are going to get robbed the whole time. And I sort of took that as a compliment because I felt like saying, well, you know, I know that. I wrote the story. <laughs> and, if, and if you got so tied up into the whodunit that you forgot that I'm the one who told you in the first line, then that, uh, that means that I must have done okay with the whodunit. So, yes, it was a very negative uh, experience. But in writing the story, I was, I was able to, um, to, to sort of recapture 
that in a little bit of a vicarious way for the person who was uh, reading it. You know, a lot of people are almost paralyzed by fear uh, when they're thinking of travels at home all alone, thinking, what could go wrong? I better not go there. Do you find that people are fearful of certain places? Have you been fearful of certain places? And uh, how do you handle that? Well, I think that's a normal way to feel. And I think the more you travel, the more you realize, the more you have instincts for travel and the more you realize that the world is really quite a safe place. And that at most, you might be the victim of, of petty crimes, uh, but those big headline-type crimes uh, you know, rarely happen. The, the odds of you getting into these really bad situations are no greater overseas than they are at home. Interestingly, using the uh, being robbed in Istanbul experience as an example, had I just read any guidebook that talks about dangers and annoyances for male travels, it talks about this scam. Um, the Lonely Planet, for example, page 70, said... Solo male travelers are targeted for being drugged and robbed by these uh, confidence men. Okay, teach us that lesson, Rolf. Share the actual uh, threat for people so we know about it. Well, in Istanbul, uh, and this happened to me about eight or nine years ago, but I suspect it's still the same. Um, Arab men working in twos come up and they pretend to be tourists or local workers and they befriend solo males, who, and solo males tend to be a little bit more confident and, and less worried about their physical safety. And then they usually slip a little date rape drug into a, a cookie, as was the case with me, or into a beer or something. And then they, they rob the victim. On the plus side, rarely does the victim get uh, you know, physically harmed, because I think that makes the police less likely to crack down on this sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Just guys getting robbed is less of a serious crime, and, and they're less likely to put police resources into that. But it's, it's one of many local crimes that are directed at tourists. And when you're in a tourist zone, you're safe in a certain way, but you're unsafe in another way because you're in a place that's sort of an economic zone for, for hustlers and pickpockets. So any good guidebook or any good you know, internet message board uh, will be a good place to research the local scams. It's good to keep an eye out for local scams. And that's one advantage of, of guidebooks in general is that sometimes the hotel information might be a little dated or the restaurant information. But cultural tips and especially those time-honored scams. And this is just one that happens in Istanbul. And there's similar scams and tourist-related uh, crimes around the world. And if you're just careful and you inform yourself, then you're much less likely to be a victim of these things. You know, that's so interesting that there are these scams that become popular and they come in, in vogue here and then they learn about it and all of a sudden it's over there. And, and somebody talks about it or you hear about it, you read about it, and then suddenly it's happening to you. And if you know to anticipate it, it's quite easy to um, foil that little theft attempt. But really, when you, when you don't know what's happening... Uh, it can be a, a remarkably uh, simple and expensive little uh, learning experience. So it, it behooves travelers to read the guidebook about the scams, uh, uh, talk to other travelers, and if somebody's telling you a story about uh, the way the uh, mothers with their beautiful babies will come and distract you or how plainclothes policemen will come and ask to check for counterfeit currency and ask to see your wallet or whatever, uh, these are real. These are scams, and there's almost like newsletters among all the pickpockets and street thieves where they share this information. Thankfully, it's, uh, uh, you know, well, tourists are natural targets, but it's usually just petty purse snatchings and pickpocketings, and those of us who have valuable stuff in our purses and wallets and those who have, of us who are naive out in the streets are the ones that are victimized. But in the long run, I find it, it makes uh, for an expensive but a, a fun travel memory. And it made for an, an interesting chapter in my new book. So as, <laughs> well, as negative as it was, it ended up being a memorable story. Speaking of memorable stories, you were talking about shopping for donkeys in the Libyan desert. Uh, mm. Give us a little insight into that experience. Well, I guess it's, and this isn't the only chapter where I, I go to a place and my, my yearnings for adventure are a little bit vague. When you think of things in ideals, you think that you have to be a steely-eyed adventurer like T.E. Lawrence or something. But when I went to the Libyan desert of Egypt, I just had this vague yearning to be out in an empty space and to wander this, uh, this great sand sea, these, these deserts where the, that are completely featureless. And, and that, that was as much a T.E. Lawrence thing as an, an Edward Abbey thing or a Far Side cartoon or Star Wars or Indiana Jones feeling of just being in this place that is so different from what I'm used to. So... I decided that I was going to cross this desert uh, on a donkey, and I just decided that was going to be my adventure, and so I went shopping for donkeys and um, sort of had the most ridiculously humiliating experience of trying to buy a donkey, but finally the guy at my hotel just rolled his eyes and said, well, why don't you just be your own donkey? Um, which in, in the Arabic world sort of has a double meaning. A donkey is sort of a stupid person. <laughs> so um, like a true uh, donkey or like a metaphorical donkey, I wandered off in, into the desert by myself and had a remarkable adventure 
until I foolishly uh, sat down on my bag and burst one of my water bottles and was forced to make a tough decision on how to get out of this vast emptiness with the water I had left. And so actually the title of that story is called Be Your Own Donkey, and it's sort of a a classic uh, desert adventure tale that was hinged on this sort of uh, bad decision that I made when I was out there. So you can make your own adventure. You set out to make an adventure, especially if you're a travel writer. You've got to come home with something to share. It's funny that you can, you can be on the road and sometimes kind of look over the last few days and realize not a lot has been happening that really is that interesting. And suddenly you turn a corner and it's just an abundance of, of wonderful experiences. Do you, have an, do you have a sense of that when you're on the road? For 10 years you've been a professional travel writer. Sometimes you're going out there and just drawing blanks. I, I do, and sometimes my most delightful experiences aren't really worth writing about because they have no conflict, and of course a story benefits from having a conflict. And, you know, I think about that trip into the desert. I've had other little anonymous experiences like that, and had I not burst my water bottle, I might have just had this nice little few days of camping in the Great Sand Sea and nothing would have happened. But as I talk about the end notes to the story, this book sort of has what I call the commentary track when I sort of rewind after the story and talk about the circumstances behind the story and the writing of the story. And part of the circumstances in this situation were that it probably wasn't a story that I could write about until, uh, you know, I made that awful mistake. And while I was slogging my way out of the desert, not sure if my water would last or not, I'd actually ceased to think about the story. And it wasn't until I was out of the desert and I was safe that I began to look back, almost like the time I got robbed in Turkey, and realize, hmm, you know, this, there, there was a conflict. There was a, a bit of uncertainty and an adventure in a way I hadn't expected. And now that I'm safe, I can begin to recount this as yeah. a story. I love these end notes. It's, it's like uh, when you watch a, a DVD, they've got the editor's cut, and you can hear the editor talking about what really went on behind the scenes. Here in your book, you've got 20 different stories, 20 exciting travel adventures, and then these end notes give you, once the story's done, a little insight into what happened. Uh, clever idea. I'm talking with Rolf Potts. Rolf uh, has written a new book called Marco Polo Didn't Go There. I'm a traveling man made a lot of stops all over the Travel writer Rolf Potts is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. His website is rolfpotts.com, and his latest book is called Marco Polo Didn't Go There, Stories and Revelations from One Decade as a Postmodern Travel Writer. And a little later in the hour, we'll open the phones for your suggestions on eating your way around the world. Thanks for joining us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Rolf Potts, who's written a book called Marco Polo Didn't Go There, talking about how to uh, find adventure in a world that's quite well discovered. Rolf, you write about finding adventure. 
This is a big challenge for travelers in this modern age. Uh, I always call travel the last great source of legal adventure. You know, my son is an expert at finding adventure when he's in Europe. He, he wrote in his blog, he was in Milan, and uh, the guys uh, climbed the spire of the Milan Cathedral. I doubt if that was uh, something you're supposed to do, but they just needed to have some adventure. Uh, you wrote about crashing uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's film set for the beach and uh, road roulette hitching in Lithuania. Uh, tell me a little about these chances where you just say, I got to go for it. I mean, tell me about the Leonardo DiCaprio thing. Well, that was a situation where uh, the beach, and this is 10 years now, but the beach was a famous novel with backpackers, and it really explores the idea of why we seek untouched places when we travel. Why do we want to be away from other travelers and, and even local people sometimes when we travel? And so when they started to turn that into a movie, I was really struck by the idea that in the novel, The Beach, they're seeking out this very exclusive island that's that's sort of untouched by the public eye. Whereas when they were filming the beach, they were very secretive about this. Leonardo DiCaprio was just off the success of Titanic. And so it was just as exclusive, but in a much more public way. And I sort of wanted to go into the uh, creation of this movie because travel is sometimes seen as a consumer experience. And this movie um, had potential of changing the way people see Thailand. So I sort of wanted to sneak in, do a little gonzo adventure to see if I could make it onto this very exclusive set. And this gonzo adventure ended up sort of being a philosophical examination of why we travel. So it's sort of a madcap adventure that turns philosophical in the middle of the story as I try to figure out why I'm doing this and why travelers in general seek to get away from other travelers. Well, now there's some gonzo journalism, then probably just the opposite is when a travel writer like yourself takes a, a fam trip or a, an industry trip. Do you go on some of those press trips? Sometimes. I, I try to avoid them. They're very common in the industry. Um, often those fam trips are done through uh, magazine assignments, and that's one thing I talk about in the middle of my book. I have a little section called The Dubious Thrill of Press Trips. And um, just sort of talking about what it's like to write about a story, for example, Grenada, when the tourist board has funded the magazine's expenses on this trip and how can you bring critical insight into this story about this place uh, when it's being paid for by the country that's hosting you. Well, what are your ethics in that case? What kind of position does that put you in as a travel writer? Well, it's tough because um, one reason why travel writing is sort of seen as, as puffy and light and, and compromised is the fact that a lot of consumer travel writing does come off sounding like advertising copy. But of course, wanting to carry a certain degree of integrity and critical perspective to a place, you try to just work within what you have to work with. And, and sometimes it's a little humbling. I talk about in the end notes of my book about going on a magazine assignment to Crete. Uh, I was kayaking in Crete. There's some aspects of the trip that I didn't like, but I was traveling with people. You know, I travel all year, um, but I was traveling with uh, fellow kayakers who only travel a couple weeks a year, and they loved it. And so even though my jaded travel eyes uh, thought that the whole trip was a little bit silly, uh, the people I was with who are a lot like the people who read the magazine loved it. And so that sort of humbled my own take on things, and I tried to um, bring a degree of critical insight while at the same time maintaining the idea of who is being served by this travel writing. Well, there certainly is a lot of interest in the industry to get media for places that have had big investments. When I'm traveling around with my public television film crew, I can tell if there's been a big investment in this or that part of the city, that's where they want to take us, and that's what they want to get exposure. Well, you know, as a journalist, you can pay attention to that. It feels good to be able to rise above that and really say, I'm here to talk about this or that, not about what you're trying to promote. Have you found that you can get away with keeping that, those higher ideals even though you got a, a, a free plane ticket and a hotel from this uh, press trip? I like to think I have. I, I, I sort of expound on that in some detail in the end notes. To Marco Polo didn't go there. But I, I think that one advantage of travel writing is that it can occupy this nice middle ground. It can offer a perspective on a place that you don't get from the regular news media, which tends to follow crises and disasters. Uh, and then you have tourist advertising, the picture postcard cliches of how the world looks like and how it's supposed to be. And if you can go in there and capture the human texture of a place, you know, to sort of bring home something that makes a faraway place uh, seem familiar or seem appealing in a way that is dynamic and true, then that's the challenge. And of course, when you have a marketing person breathing down your neck, it's all the more difficult. And so in some ways, trips that are very comfortable are more difficult to write about because um, you're trying to capture that human texture. You're trying to find something true about the place. 
uh, and get beyond sort of the glossy tourist yeah. advertising veneer. Oh, and the texture they're interested in, you'd come home with his, uh, the sheets and the towels or something like that in the fancy hotel on the beach. Exactly. In your book, you write, uh, media-driven notions color your expectations. Is it the expectation itself that robs a bit of the authenticity from the destinations we seek out? Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, I think that uh, people travel the world, for example, to see a place like Machu Picchu, which is the wonderful uh, complex of temples in the Andes Mountains in Peru. But when you go there, that beautiful postcard you have in your mind is tainted because maybe you'll, you'll get sick or maybe there's 2,000 other tourists there. And so if you're not open to the real dynamic of a place and sort of getting into adventures on the way to Machu Picchu or on the way from Machu Picchu, those expectations might make you think that this place is ruined when, in fact, that's just the way things are. I, I once went to a cowboy ranch in Thailand, and some people might instinctively say, oh, it's American culture bringing Thai culture down. When in fact, it's just middle-class Thai people, you know, instead of going to the beaches and the temples and the mountains that appeal to Western people, some middle-class Thai people from Bangkok want to go and ride horses and shoot guns and bows and arrows. And it's very much this little cowboy ranch is an expression of Thai culture and their obsession with uh, their own stereotypical ideas about the West. And so I think if, if you tie yourself too much in expectations of what a place, be it Machu Picchu or Thailand or the next county over, is supposed to be like, then you're going to miss out on the true dynamic of that place. And I think that's the challenge of the travel writer these days. You don't want to fall prey to those exotic stereotypes you want to get in and, and really see how a place is, even though it might not match up to exactly the picture postcard you had in your mind. You know, that is a very good point. So many of us are, we have this image of uh, maidens at the well with jugs on their heads and this sort of idyllic, pristine old world thing. And, and these people are marching into the modern world more than trying to uh, pose for postcards of our you know, clichetic sort of dreams. And sometimes you can see their appetite for Western culture. Uh, just like you went to that fun cowboy ranch in Thailand, one of my favorite experiences in Germany was going to a, sort of their Disneyland called Fantasialand and getting their take on American Wild West culture. I'm uh, Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Rolf Potts. And Rolf has a website where you can learn more about his work. It's simply rolfpotts.com, R-O-L-F-P-O-T-T-S.com. And Rolf has written a book called Marco Polo Didn't Go There. Rolf, you know, the world's becoming quite discovered. A lot of people are talking about stay vacations, which I think is sort of uh, a challenge to stay home and have a culturally broadening experience. On the other hand, you wrote a fun uh, chapter in your book about going to uh, Minneapolis in Kansas, which makes Minneapolis in uh, Minnesota look like New York City probably. And uh, you, you wrote about the... Uh, the local museum there, humble as it was, having some charm that you wouldn't find in the Louvre. Share that with us. Yeah, well, I, it's one of these other accidental experiences. I had just been in, in Burma or Myanmar where I'd bought a $40 Chinese bicycle and ridden it across the land and uh, down the Irrawaddy River Valley, and I'd come home for Christmas. My family lived there, and now I live there. I have a little farmhouse in Kansas, although at the time I didn't. I was just visiting my family. And my sister was uh, going antique shopping in Minneapolis, Kansas, which is a town of about 2,000 people. And I was just, I was just uh, a little bit bored, I guess. And she suggested I go to the museum, but having been to the Hermitage and the Louvre, I just didn't expect much out of the, uh, the Ottawa County Museum. Uh, and then I met this, this old guy, who, an old World War II vet, who had a little license tag that said India, Burma, China, World War II vet. And so I started talking to him about his experiences in Asia, which turned out to be in India. Turns out when he was a GI, he had been to Egypt and had gotten a little chunk of one of the pyramids from his guide. And uh, he says, well, you should go to the museum. That's one of the best things we have here in Minneapolis, Kansas. And I said, well, I'd rather see that little chunk of uh, pyramid that you got way back when. And he said, well, you have a problem then because that little chunk of pyramid is in the museum. And so I went to the museum with him and I just discovered that sometimes these little small county museums that you might overlook um, really have a connection with the rest of the world. It's sort of a way that a small community like Minneapolis, Kansas can take little bits of the outside world and hold them up for that community to see and to sort of take aspects of its own community to show as a, as a source of pride to the people that come there. For example, a, an Ottawa County resident had written Abraham Lincoln years ago telling him to grow a beard. So they had that letter on display. They had some dinosaur bones that had been discovered by the father of the museum curator. And what I saw at the Ottawa County Museum in this little town in Kansas was just, just sort of a lot more engaging and human than I would find in the Louvre or the Hermitage, which show, you know, things of erudition and empire, whereas what I found in the Ottawa County Museum was more a matter of connection and continuity. And the guy I met on the street could show me the P-51 
piece of pyramid he found when he was 25 years old. And the curator of the museum could tell us the story about how his father was riding on horseback and found this dinosaur bone and got this uh, armor-plated dinosaur named after him. And so just by being open to an experience, almost by accident, I discovered a really interesting experience just a county over from Hmm. uh, where I grew up. That is so important to be open to those kind of experiences and take the opportunity when they present themselves. Uh, You talking about that little museum in Ottawa County, engaging and and, uh, connecting with locals and the community reminded me of a similarly humble museum in Glencoe in Scotland. And I had just been to the big National Museum in Edinburgh, and I had a friend who wanted to take me to his town's museum, Glencoe, and I thought, well, out of politeness, I said, sure, I'll go there. And then he's a volunteer for that museum, and his relatives have contributed the artifacts there, uh, relatively humble, but for him to pull a sword off the wall and say they found this in his uncle's thatch as the clan's people hid their swords when the English were coming to wipe out the clan culture in Scotland, for him to pick up that sword and let me hold it, and then to show me how they would defend themselves with their shields against the English coming in, and to to feel his sort of local pride, and then for him to take me over to the pile of Roman coins and tell me that he found these with his own little Geiger counter searching for coins, knowing that in Roman times, they used to bury their coins outside of the town before they'd go in because they might get mugged and stolen of their coins. That just brought that to life. And as you said, it's more engaging. It's it's more in touch with the community. And uh, these are museums that a lot of people wouldn't cross the street for. So you got that opportunity, assuming you're looking for an intimate sort of vivid human connection, to go to the more humble sites in Minneapolis, Kansas, or in Glencoe, Scotland, and really connect. Totally. People are always asking me, you know, how to get off the beaten path. And I say, go to the Great Plains, you know, go to a, go to these quote unquote red states. They go halfway around the world to get off the beaten path and meet people in small towns and farmers and stuff. Well, you have a lot of that right here in the United States. And, and sometimes unless you go into a place like the Ottawa County Museum, you'll never realize the richness it has to offer. And the local pride that people have to share and so on. You were also writing about Central America. And, uh, you know, when most people go south of the border, it's Mazatlan or or Puerto Vallarta or Cancun. You chose to go to El Salvador and Nicaragua. Uh, Was that rewarding as opposed to enjoying a nice beach on on the west coast of Mexico? It was. um, You know, El Salvador and Nicaragua have this sort of war-torn reputation that goes back a couple of decades but you talk about the beach culture. On that same trip, I passed through Mazatlan, and El Salvador, for example, has beaches that are just as beautiful as Mazatlan, but uh, five times as empty, you know, going back to the idea of getting away from other travelers. Waiting for development, really. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes it's the places that sound sinister that end up being really interesting because they're just traveled less, and the people who are there are just a little bit more exuberant and spontaneous when you show up. And the same thing can happen in a place like Nicaragua, where like a town like Granada where I visited, has a lot of culture. It's almost like Antigua, which a lot of people go to in Guatemala and has long had a great reputation as a little Central American colonial town. But uh, Granada in Nicaragua is just that much more off the, off the tourist trail and that much more rich and inviting, and um, I really enjoyed my time there. Rolf, how would you compare Nicaragua and El Salvador? Yeah, I guess one, one way to answer is that my experiences there were very specific to what I did. And so I had a very surfing, oceany, beachy type experience in El Salvador, whereas it was more of a colonial town experience in Nicaragua. Um, I think that they both have very uh, unique things to them. That you know, I guess a lot of Salvadorian Americans live in El Salvador. It might have a little bit more of an American flavor uh, because so many Salvadorians moved up to California and other places in the United States during their civil war in the 1980s. Mm. So Nicaragua felt, to me, just a little bit more outside of that U.S. radar. But both of them were places that are just as lovely as stereotypical places you would go to in Central America. For example, Guatemala or Costa Rica, which are much more heavily traveled, um, Panama also, and and parts of Mexico. Um, But just are a little bit less discovered and just sort of a little bit more organic, spontaneous experiences on these beaches and in these colonial towns. Did you find most of the travelers in El Salvador and Nicaragua had an appetite for the political roots of the recent conflict and uh, economic justice issues, or were they just looking for cheap prices on the beach? 
Well, both. I think everybody's aware of El Salvador in particular. I think some people will go to El Salvador because it sounds edgy, it sounds cool. <laughs> and then when you go to El Salvador, of course, it's, it's quite safe and it's not as dangerous as it sounds. But sometimes people like the idea of going to a place that might be edgy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a sort of a superficiality to that. But there's also some people who go down there with a keen sense of political justice and, and just sort of uh, keeping tabs and seeing these places for themselves. Uh, another place that pops into my head when you mention that is Cuba, a place that has very stereotypical image on both sides of the political spectrum. But to go to Cuba, you sort of see that, that very human space in the middle of uh, both ends of the political stereotype spectrum. You know, talking about getting off the beaten path and how in this day and age do we go to a place where the tourist is a little bit less uh, part of the economy and more part of the party. Recently, I've talked to people going to Latin America, going to Cuba, going to Colombia, going to Nicaragua and El Salvador, those are four countries that have had some problems with the United States and so on, and people think it's a little edgy. And you get there, and you find a warm welcome, you find great prices, and you find uh, you find that the traveler is, is really uh, welcomed into the party. And I think that can be very rewarding travel. Absolutely. It's something that I found in the Middle East, too. Like, I, I went to Egypt, which is great, but Egyptians have been hosting tourists for 5,000 years and are just a little bit jaded. Uh, when I went to Syria, this rogue state, mm-hmm. which uh, sees far fewer tourists, um, I just found this even stronger Arab exuberance and sense of welcome and sense of curiosity about who I was. Uh, the same thing happened in Southeast Asia. Thailand is a wonderful place. I wrote my first book, Vagabonding, there. But when I went over to Burma, to Myanmar, it was a place that sees far fewer tourists and far more um, warm and welcoming place. Not to knock Thailand, because Thailand is a fantastic place to travel, but Myanmar, Burma is just that much more warm and welcoming. So maybe that is an underlying theme of your book. Marco Polo didn't go there. Go one step further. From Thailand, you can go to Myanmar. You know, from uh, Yucatan, you can go to El Salvador. And from uh, Machu Picchu, you can go to Colombia. And then you'll have that more travel adventure that some people might think is less available these days. You bet. And and that's something you can go from the Champs-Élysées, you know, to one arrondissement over. It need not even be applied to nations in general. Or you could go to Minneapolis, Kansas. Exactly. And check out the little museum. I've been speaking with Rolf Potts, the author of a fascinating new book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, talking about how we can get beyond the tourist crush and really have more enriching travel experiences. Rolf, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Uh Uh-huh. To experience your own misadventures, like those that Rolf is so good at finding, first, you have to get out there and travel. Of course, there's the financial reality, how to live well on the road without going broke. Many of us travel to eat, and to eat well. Good travelers learn that the best dining experiences are determined not by how much you spend, but by where and what you decide to eat. When I'm finding restaurants to recommend in my guidebooks, I'm looking not for the biggest neon sign that brags, we speak English and accept visa cards, but a place that's off the main drag, packed out with locals. Locals, these are loyal return customers who know and expect a good value. If the TV's blaring, they cater to locals. That's good news. If it's next to the market, packed out and open only workdays at lunch, it's bound to be a good place. Up next, we're talking dining on a budget. Let's open up our phones next at 877-333-RICK and hear some of your suggestions for getting the most out of traveling and eating on a budget. Your tips for eating on a budget overseas are next on Travel with Rick Steves. For travelers, dining out is one of the major expenses. Fortunately, it's an expense you can control. Finding the right place, you can eat for less and double your cultural experience. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, let's check in with some of our listeners and share some ideas on eating well and affordably overseas. We're at 877-333-7425. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Scott's on the line in Seattle. Scott, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Scott. What's your idea on uh, enjoying maximum experience for your precious vacation dollar when you're overseas? One thing we found uh, in Munich that was actually a great bargain was taking a brewery tour. We visited the Planner Brewery because I went with my wife and her parents, and my father-in-law and I both really liked the beer, um, and we thought it would be a fun cultural experience, and we were enticed because we knew we'd get to sample some beer at the end, and it also promised a, a snack. 
But what we found out was that the snack was actually essentially a full meal. We thought we would just get a couple of Bavarian pretzels. Huh. And in addition to that, they actually gave us a plate of Leberkäse with hot potato salad, and we got to try a couple of beers of our choice um, and had a very pleasant experience chatting with a couple of young interns who were learning the craft of brewing. And we actually got to take a guided tour with just the four of us, and they said that they were able to take us into parts of the brewery that the larger groups that normally go on these tours don't get to do um, because most of their tour groups are German. That was the Paulaner Brewery, P-A-U-L-A-N-E-R? Yes, and it's in Munich. It's about 10 or 15 minutes by tram from the center of the city. Everybody goes to Munich to go to the beer halls and enjoy the beer, but I haven't heard of anybody actually touring a brewery. That sounds great. Yeah, it's kind of hard to find. If you go to their website, it's on there in the English section. It's You have to kind of look very carefully for it. But we were able to arrange everything by email, and they told us the time and where to show up. And Did you pay for the beer at the end and get the munchies for free, or did they actually give you the beer? We paid up front for the tour. It was about eight euros a person. Right. And at the end, they took us into sort of a cafeteria for the tasting and the snack. You know, and there, right. there's a basket of pretzels. And yeah. and your and your point basically is the snack was a light meal. I have found in many places in Europe, if you know where to drink with the locals, you can enjoy what really amounts to a light meal. In northern Italy, in many of the classy professional bars or pubs, they have a happy hour where if you buy a drink, they put out all of these heavy hors d'oeuvres, and really you can sit there and call it a meal quite easily. In Spain, any good tapas bar, any good bar that locals go to, not tourists, will, if you buy a glass of wine for 2 or $3, you'll get a little plate with some potatoes and maybe some uh, seafood or some uh, local cold cuts, and it does become uh, a light snack. I was just enjoying the wonderful beer in Belgium, and I realized a good budget tip there is to go to the little pubs where you get the expensive, beautiful beer, and they serve affordable, hearty pub food with it that's appropriate for the drink, you get great ambiance, you get a cheap meal, and you get a great uh, local beer experience. Uh, did you go anywhere else with your uh, philosophy of uh, you know going to the breweries and, and eating cheaply? I actually do that a lot in the Czech Republic. I found in Prague, I've spent a lot of time in Prague over the years, and this is a tip I give to friends who are going there. Is I hit upon this strategy for trying to find a reasonably priced restaurant is, is using what I call the beer index, uh, because most of the restaurants and pubs We'll post on a chalkboard outside how much a half liter, three-tenths of a liter of beer is. And so I, I basically know that if a half liter of beer, whatever they have on tap, is around, say, 30 crowns, which is around a dollar and a half or so, I think, at the moment, that that's a good price for the beer. And it means that the food along with it on the menu is probably also reasonably priced and suitable. And so I find that a lot of times I don't go to particular restaurants. I just try to venture off down side streets from the tourist areas and look for the menus, but especially look for, you know, go where the beer is cheap because the food will be as well. Huh, Scott's Beer Meter, I like that. It's surprisingly effective, and, you know, you yeah. get the same sort of food you would get somewhere more touristy and but you at a fraction of the price. And, boy, when you're in Czech Republic, don't miss the Pilsner Urquell, right? That's, I just oh, that's Whenever yeah, I see that word, Pilsner Urquell, wow. And that brewery is worth a, a side trip from Prague in itself. It's really interesting, especially if you like beer and are interested in the history of beer making. So they do it um, well, huh? That's in Pilsen, P-L-Z-E-N. It's about a, it's not quite two hours by train from Prague. It's an easy All right. day trip. But the tour of the brewery is focused more, not on the modern method of brewing, but on the traditional method. And they actually take you down into the cellars where they still make a very small amount of beer in the wooden barrels. That's what you get to taste there. It's not the, the mm-hmm. stuff you can get at any restaurant. It's unpasteurized and filtered, and so it's it's different from what you would get, but it's a, a great experience, especially if you're a beer aficionado. You know, I've got a friend who's Czech, and he said that uh, most of the Eastern European countries have a lot of workers leaving the East, going West to find jobs, but he said the Czechs really don't leave their country to find jobs because they just can't imagine living in a country that doesn't have Czech beer on tap in the, in the rough, mm-hmm. raw form that you're talking about there. Good advice. Scott from Seattle, thanks for your call. Thank you. Happy travels. You too. Bye. Adam's on the line in Fresno. Uh, what are you thinking about in the way of um, maximizing our travel experience these days? I think that using um, picnicking to your advantage, both for food and for drink, is crucial. I was in um, Switzerland last summer, and uh, it blew my mind that 
it would cost me $10 for a beer in a pub, and I just couldn't afford it. So my brother and I would go to the grocery store and pick up a huge selection of beers and, you know, find a nice rock on top of an Alp and enjoy the scenery. That's absolutely true. I, all over Europe, local people who don't have a lot of money, they go to the 7-Eleven on the corner and get their beer for 2 bucks instead of paying highly taxed $10 for it in a pub, and they sit on a rock like you did or on the harbor front or whatever and enjoy that. I was just in Rome. We are in a nice hotel, and it was going to cost us, uh, what, $20 each for breakfast, and I thought 80 bucks for the four of us for breakfast. Why don't we just go to the bakery and then drop by a corner grocery store and put together some, you know, bread and, like, warm right out of the oven uh, croissants and some cheese and some yogurt and some juice and some fruit, and we had ourselves a picnic for four for $20 instead of a breakfast for four at the hotel for 80 That's real money saved, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and then it puts you into the markets, and the markets are very colorful. Uh, were you traveling... Uh, uh, on your own or with a family? Uh, with the family. Okay, so uh, that, that multiplies the savings even more, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, we, my parents traveled all over Europe when they were younger. So when I was growing up, anytime we went on vacation, we were picnicking every single day for lunch. So yeah. um, we turned it into like almost a challenge to see whether the, the kids or the parents could come up with a better lunch. That's a day. great idea. Give the kids some of the foreign money and let them figure it out. It's good life skills, and uh, you certainly save a lot of money. And... Whoever buys the picnic doesn't complain about it. You know, it's easy to complain about it if you if you didn't buy it. But when you bought it, you realize, hey, this is as, this is as good as I could do. Eat it. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, these days, uh, there's going to be a lot of people uh, relying on some super budget skills, the kind of Europe through the gutter skills I used when I was a backpacker slumming around Europe. And people of any age can eat well and sleep well, avoiding hotels and restaurants if they know how to. And uh, certainly, you, if you're worried about uh, atmosphere and nutrition and your budget, picnicking is a beautiful opportunity. Adam, thanks for your call. All right, thank you. Yeah. We're taking your calls as we share ideas for happy eating on the road. Some of the very best souvenirs in any country are edible. Eating with the locals, with the season, away from the tourist traps, and out of your comfort zone spices up your travel experience as little else can. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. Sam emailed us from San Diego, and Sam writes, uh, politely ask uh, the hotel receptionist for a restaurant recommendation, but be sure to specify exactly what you want. Say you want a restaurant where there be no tourists, uh, which is charming, great food, and moderate in price, a place where you eat, and perhaps uh, one where you've never recommended to a tourist. Uh, Sam, that's a great idea. In fact, that's what I ask when I'm doing my research, is I talk to the people in the hotel, and I don't say, where's a good place for a tourist to have lunch? I say, where do you go on a lunch break? Uh, I find that, you know, there's workers all over Europe, all over the world that go out for lunch, and uh, they know the good places. I was just in the countryside of England last year noticing how expensive it is, and I thought, where do all these uh, local professionals go on their lunch hour? And I would look around, and the British are really into sandwiches, and some sandwich shops have a line of people in suits waiting for the right sandwich, and other places are, are just uh, have a few sorry tourists in them. Boy, I want to wait in line with the local professionals at lunch for the right sandwich. It makes a huge difference. Uh, so, Sam, that's a very, very good tip. Eliza in San Francisco emails us about eating in Japan. Businessmen, hotels, and family-owned ryokans all over Japan cost about $50 per person and include a great breakfast. Most of them offered a generous selection of food at the breakfast buffet, including sausages, soup, fish, salads, fruit, pickled veggies, rice, as well as bread, juice, coffee, and tea. The Ryokan in Fukuoka was very old with lots of atmosphere. Their breakfast consisted of soft-boiled egg, nori, that's dried seaweed for the rice, miso soup, assorted smoked fish, pickled plums, and some yummy pink and white rolls. I forgot the name. My ten-year-old niece loved everything. Eliza, reporting from San Francisco on Breakfast in Japan. And we're talking about ways we can stretch our dollar and maximize our experience as we uh, enjoy traveling overseas. Lisa's on the line in Columbia, South Carolina. Lisa, thanks for your call. Thank you. I took my family of four to London in France in August of 2008, and the dollar was at its weakest. And some things that helped us out were picnicking was great. We did a lot of that, uh, peanut butter and jelly at the White Tower, and also buying tickets in advance online for some different attractions like Warwick Castle and public transportation that really helped us out a lot. So peanut butter at the White Tower. <laughs> that's a good <laughs> that's a wonderful image, isn't it? There's that that yeah, White Tower 
<laughs> the White Tower, you're referring to the uh, the original Norman Tower inside the Tower of London? Yes. Yeah, what a historic place, and you got all those English families there and, and school groups and so on, and a lot of locals are uh, having their picnic. I don't know if they're having peanut butter and jam, but that's a good way to do it. <laughs> you know, it's a quite expensive, especially if you're traveling with a family, and uh, uh, more and more people are picnicking. Well, it's expensive to live these days for Europeans and for travelers. Picnicking yep. saves a lot of money. It sure does. I would rather be eating peanut butter and jelly at the White Tower than lobster at home. So I love that it's quote. Great. You're you're a poet. That's very true when you've been traveling. Now, you said you saved money by booking things online. What did you mean by that? Well, we went to Warwick Castle, and I saved a lot of money buying the tickets in advance online at the Warwick site. I think just researching and learning about how the public transportation worked and one of my children was free and the other one was half price and just knowing that before I went really helped me plan. The websites are pretty well designed and there are major savings for people who will do things online. And, you know, Lisa, one thing I've noticed in the last year is all over Europe, people who insist on standing in line and dealing with a human being to get a ticket or a reservation are going to be abused. They're going to have to wait in line a long time. They're not going to get friendly service, and they're going to pay a premium. Those who can get their credit card out and book things online or research them online, that's where it's all going. And one reason the Europeans are so adamant about this is because the cost of employing people in Europe is so darn expensive. They've got to automate things. So if you're a budget traveler, a smart budget traveler, Sooner or later, you're going to have to get comfortable using your credit card online and, and uh, sussing things out, as they would say in England, online. Did you, yes. did you use your credit card online in your travels comfortably? Yes, I did. It wasn't a problem, and it was easy to find a place where you could get online. I had an iPod Touch with me, and lots of the taverns had free Wi-Fi, or you could use the computer pretty cheaply, usually in your hotel lobby for a pound or two. Now, help me about this, because I've got an iPhone 2, and i got to say I'm nervous about going overseas and using it because I've heard horror stories about how it, if it's roaming, if it's just on, you'll be constantly roaming and, and paying a penny a minute just to have the thing turned on. How do you use it economically overseas? Well, if you're just using Wi-Fi, um, it's free. If oh. it's not, because um, I just have an iTouch, I actually don't have an iPhone, so I was just using the free Okay, Wi-Fi. well, that's great. What a, what a handy tool that is. Now, you also yeah. talked about using public transit, and that's something we Americans have to get serious about yeah. when we're traveling, because I was just reading Arthur Fromer's new book, and one of his top 10 budget tips is never pay a taxi to go in from the airport. Use public transit. And he's so oh, right. Yeah. You know, there's public transit. It seems like it's almost government subsidized all over Europe, and it works for locals. You may get it to the hotel 15 minutes late, but you're going to save $50. And if your time's worth less than $200 an hour, that's a very good move. And I found one time, a long time ago, I was traveling on business in Europe, and we took a taxi. And we missed, we almost missed our flight. And ever since then, I take public transportation to the airport because I think it's more reliable. You can get stuck in traffic in a taxi. Well, that's a horribly scary thing when you're in a foreign country and you're stuck in a horrendous traffic jam, and then you realize there's people on the metro that are going out there uh, oblivious to the traffic jam. Right. Something to think about. Uh, Lisa, thanks for your tips. Those are great. Thank <laughs> you, Rick. Claudia's on the line in Dallas. Hi, Claudia. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. You bet. Nice to talk to you. Well, we had our experience of the worst food, I must say, quite surprisingly, in Edinburgh, Scotland. Hmm. Our older son was doing summer study at Cambridge University, and this was an opportunity that I had with our younger son to do some traveling um, and went beyond just the ins and outs and small towns and of England, went up to Edinburgh. We stayed in the most wonderful hotel, the Caledonian, mm. there, and I thought this was going to be absolutely fantastic, this beautiful English breakfast in the morning. And surprisingly enough, we had taken some sausage, and I thought, hmm, that looks a little bit well done, but okay, this will be fine. And when the waiter went by, I happened to say, you know, do you always cook your sausage? This woman goes, oh, no, ma'am, that's blood sausage. Whoa. <laughs> and we thought, blood sausage? You all eat this stuff? <laughs> and so we found a way to kind of tuck it underneath the eggs. Yeah. And, of course, our younger son, who had been taught by then, you know, you eat what's on your plate, said, well, Mom, you know what you <laughs> have to do. And I was caught. 
But we didn't order and didn't pull out and um, eat things like that afterwards that we really couldn't identify well. Well, you were staying in the Caledonian Hotel in Edinburgh. That's that giant uh, 19th it's, century palace and there. And it's beautiful. Oh, right in the center. Absolutely but, beautiful. Who thought they would serve blood sausage? Well, you know, that's probably the mark of a fine place if you are a traditional Scottish diner. But you know what I've learned? Because I don't, I don't really like the sausage in the bed and breakfast anywhere in Britain. And maybe some people who are into this so would be find this a sacrilege. But I just, as a matter of uh, standard practice, say I'll have the, Engli- the, the traditional fry but hold the sausage. The, the sausage, to me, is the one thing that's just too rich and uh, too exotic. Well, I must say we learned that after that experience. On the other hand, the best meal that we ever had was in Ireland with a Guinness like beef stew or pot roast, whatever they call it. Oh, yeah. With a Guinness beer. It was, again, pub grub out of this world fantastic. Hmm, the Guinness stew, yes, I've heard that's very good. All right, well, thanks for your call. You're more than welcome. Happy Thank travels. you. Bye now. Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Here are some recent examples of what listeners have sent us. Kelsey Queering of Minneapolis writes us about his impression of Italy's Cinque Terre coast. Monterosso rains, blot out the Ligurian, quench the thirsty grapes. And probably on the same day, this was his experience. Rain in Vernazza. Tourists wielding umbrellas poke out both my eyes. And Laura Smith from Portland, Oregon, sends us this haiku as a souvenir of her family trip. Fly to Italy with an 11-month-old. What were we thinking? Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Julie Cohen for reading today's haiku. There's more in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com, including links to our guests and archives of each edition of the program. You can also send us your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show, or add your comments on our ongoing message boards. We get technical and production help from Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Special thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their production help today. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and Rick's audio tours of Europe's greatest sites in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work, his guidebooks and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.